Father, you give us the promise that your word will not return to you empty or void, but it will accomplish what you have purposed for it. As you send rain down from heaven to water the earth and it bears fruit, so you give us your word to bear the fruit of transforming and conforming us to the likeness and the image of Christ. And so, Lord, illumine us, fill our minds and our hearts to come out of ourselves and to be filled with the beauty and the wonder and the majesty and the love of Jesus Christ. So, Holy Spirit, we implore upon you to be our teacher that whether we are heralding this good news or hearing this good news, you would teach us and we would come under your wonderful authority. We pray in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. The word of the Lord upon which our teaching is based this morning comes out of Mark's gospel. We are, if you're new or just in the case of review, we're going through Mark's gospel. We'll be doing this through the end of May, kind of trying to take ourselves through. Our goal was for this part of the year to get through the first half of Mark's gospel through chapter 8. We'll break for summer when, I don't know if you remember this, we have about 30 to 35 students coming for June and July uh, from these colleges in Georgia. I think Kath, I just saw Catherine's face go, that means they're going to want to eat and things like that. Uh, and so they'll be here for June and July, so we'll do something different. And then back in the fall, we'll pick up with Mark 9 to 16. And one of the reasons we do it this way is Mark is basically giving us a life of Jesus. He's giving us a biography, if you would, of Jesus. And the first eight chapters tell us, here's the king. This is who he is. And that's what we're focusing on this year. Chapters 9 through 16 basically say, this is what the king came to do. So this is the king, Jesus. This is what Jesus came to do. And we are in Mark chapter 6. We're picking up at verse 45, where it says, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat. And go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone at the land. And when he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. And cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret, and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was, wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. And friends, this is the word of the Lord. I so appreciate, I told Sherry after the first service, I said she gave me uh, my introduction for the sermon because she gave a wonderful story of rescue in her life, giving a testimony of what God is doing, rescuing, and notice I say it that way, it's never rescued. You know what God's doing in our sanctification, our conforming us to the image of Christ? He's continually rescuing, rescuing us, he's maturing us, he's growing us. Sanctification is a process, it's a journey. 
And Sherry shared how she is being rescued, where God is rescuing her from perfectionism. Same thing, I said, huh, pretty interesting. I don't know that my staff now is taking after me since uh, I am my worst critic, my own worst enemy. You can say whatever you want about the sermon. You can't touch what I'll say about myself in terms of that. So I relate to what it looks like to be in the process of being rescued from perfection. And isn't it amazing, one of the things you notice is that whenever God wants to be in the process of rescuing us, you know what he does? He sends us into a storm. I'm struck in this text. Verse 45 begins, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat. You know, I don't know about you, but I'd be like, uh, I'm fine, Jesus. We just fed the 5,000. They're all hungry. Let them go. I'll be on the recliner watching Sports Center. The Yankees are on this afternoon. I'm good. Jesus has something else in mind all the time, doesn't he? He ordained for them to get into the boat, go before him. He's going to go and he's going to seek fellowship with the Father, wisdom from the Father, always being dependent on the Father, going inside. He knew exactly what he was doing because it talks about evening comes, the boat's out on the sea, he's alone on the land, and he saw. We don't know if they were 100 yards from there, three or four miles. The text doesn't tell us. But what we do know is he saw that they were struggling. In fact, the text tells us that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. So if you remember in our study of the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 4, we have another storm story. The disciples were out, and we're told it was a storm here. We're told the wind was against them. So even though we're not told explicitly, Jesus sent them out into a storm. Because if this was just a breezy day, and they were out going fishing and they had a few cold ones out there on the boat, and they're taking it easy, we wouldn't be told that they were making headway painfully, struggling for the sea. The wind was raging against them. Jesus ordained and sent them into the storm. And he sends us into the storm. One of the things that we need to learn, see, Mark's giving us this biography of Jesus, and he said this biography is all about the gospel. Remember I said, keep before you all the time, chapter 1, verse 1, where Mark said the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus was sent into the world by God to bring the gospel, the good news that in him, the inbreaking into the world came of the rule and reign of God, the kingdom of God. But let me ask you a question. Where does the gospel, the good news, begin? What is its starting point? Let me share a brief story with you illustrating this. A good friend of mine by the name of Steve Childers, Steve was actually at our church 14 years ago participating in my installation here as your pastor. Steve's a good friend of mine. He tells the story of doing a missions conference with Jack Miller, who is the founder and the executive director of World Harvest Mission that is now called Surge Ministries. Steve tells the story of traveling with Jack, and they happen to be doing a missions conference. So they're in a room filled with professional missionaries. And at one point in the conference, Jack stopped everything, stopped his speaking. He's given a talk. He's given a message. And he says, up, halt, stop. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to your neighbor one-on-one, and I want you to share the gospel with each other. Of course, these, of course, these missionaries, they kind of all came to a halt. What? Does Jack not think we understand the gospel? 
Do we not know what it is? Why is he having us do this? This doesn't make any sense. And Jack said, the whole place almost came into an uproar. What's going on here? Think about it. If I were to stop the service right now, and I were to say, turn to your neighbor, and I want you to take the next five minutes and share the gospel with them. The simple, give a simple gospel presentation, a brief five-minute presentation on the gospel. Could you do it? And where would you begin? Would everything fall apart? See, let me ask you the question, what would be your starting point? Would you begin with how to trust and receive Christ? Would you begin with the nature of faith? What it looks like to surrender to Christ? Or maybe you would begin with Jesus dying for your sins. That's the gospel. Jesus died for your sins in order to atone for our sins and to justify us. May I suggest a different point for your beginning point, your starting point? Yes, I would hope you would get to all of those things. But may I suggest that the proper place to begin is with God himself, with the character and specifically the lordship, the sovereign lordship of God himself. As John Piper has written, God is the gospel. God is Lord. And as we go through this chapter of Mark's gospel and we see Jesus in both word and deed demonstrating and fulfilling in himself the good news, the gospel, that he is Lord, we see this as his focus, whether it is his feeding of the 5,000 or like in the passage we're looking at this morning, his walking on the water. The beginning point, the foundation point, the starting point of the gospel is the lordship of God and specifically the lordship of Jesus Christ. Christ is our life. What does this mean practically? And what does this mean according to this text in two, in two stages, in two perspectives, if you would? What do we learn here? What does it mean to call Jesus Lord? What does it mean for Christ to be our life? First of all, what does it mean for Christ to be our life in the storm? And second of all, what does it mean for Christ to be our life in salvation? Christ is our life in the storm, and Christ is, in the, is our life in salvation. And let's understand something about storms, first of all. Christ is our life in the storm, and all of our life is a storm. Some worse, some it doesn't mean it's the same level, same doesn't mean it's an F5 tornado every ounce of every day. But recognize this goes on with one of the themes that we've been talking about in the Gospel of Mark, the wilderness theme. We're not in the promised land. We're strangers and exiles. We're refugees and sojourners. We were built for heaven and we're living our life on this side, journeying and traveling in the wilderness, which means all of our life is kind of through the storm. Now, there's certain times that are more intense than others. The disciples had one of those times. Look with me. Let's set the scene. Remember I said immediately, verse 45 says, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida. Bethsaida, which was a city on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. While he dismissed the crowd, and after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw, remember I went over with you last week, Paul Miller gives the three steps that Jesus does in his relating. First he sees, he observes, he notices what's going on. And based on that see, what he sees, what he observes, he's able to enter in, he feels appropriately what's going on. 
And then based on that, he takes action. So here he sees, and what does he see? They're making headway painfully. He observes that they're struggling. He sees their pain. And why? Because the wind was against them. Now, even though it doesn't explicitly say a storm, if it wasn't a storm, they wouldn't be making headway painfully. They wouldn't be struggling. They wouldn't be... And then he sees that, and about the fourth watch of the night, he comes to them, walking on the sea. And if you take this, it's not simply he's walking on the water. He's kind of walking through the storm. This is not a casual stroll where Jesus is going, Hey, guys, it's me. Isn't it a nice night? Moon's out, stars pretty. Want to join me out here? He's walking through the raging wind that they're struggling against. He's coming through the violent, raging, surging storm. Now, let me remind us of another prominent theme that we see in the Gospel of Mark. And that is the theme of the new exodus. And we see that not only in the wilderness where Jesus is fulfilling a new exodus. For when we see Jesus walking on the water through the storm, we need to see this as part of the same story, part of the exodus story. And what was a part of the Exodus story? The children of Israel went from slavery in Egypt, where God was going to free them. them. And how did he go about freeing them? They had to journey through the Red Sea, where the waters parted and came down upon their enemies. I have a good friend, he's actually a friend of mine who discipled me in the faith 25 years ago. And I've been talking to him every couple of weeks, we've been reconnecting in our lives. And we were recently, you know, I'm preaching on this, kind of the new exodus. He's doing some study. He lives up in Nashville. And we were talking about this recently. And he says to me, he says, Jeff, I can't imagine the Israelites and what was scarier. Standing upon the shores of the Red Sea, looking out over it, you're there and you look behind us. And even if you're not familiar with the Bible, you've got to be familiar with the movie. Now, I want to advocate the Bible more than the movie, but I'm sure you've seen the movie. You look back over you, you're at the shores of the Red Sea, and what's behind you? Egyptians on chariots, here they come, and they're barreling down on you. And he goes, I wonder what's scarier, the chariots about to barrel down on you, or all of a sudden, you see the waters part, and you go, that's the power of God? And you journey through the storm, so to speak, on the way to freedom. There's no alternative. Part of our Exodus story is for us to enter into freedom through the storm. Boy, do I wish there was another way. But there's not. No matter what you have to face. See, what do you face when you're facing a storm? You face your helplessness. You face your weakness. You face your powerlessness. You face your limitations. You face your loneliness. I don't know about you, but I hate loneliness. I'm a people person. I'm going on vacation tomorrow. I'm really looking forward to it. You know what we're doing? We're seeing friends. I like my alone time. I like to read and stuff, but I love hanging out with people. I'm a people person. And I do everything I can to avoid loneliness. And there's nothing more lonely than when you have to face your powerlessness. And your helplessness. We all like to fix situations. And let me tell you something we learn from the text and we certainly learn from life. Control is a myth. Control is an illusion. We're not in control. 
You know, you need to understand something about the significance in an ancient mindset, and especially in a Hebrew mindset, of the image of the sea. In order to see Jesus as this divine figure coming to the rescue of the disciples, you need to understand something about the image of the sea. And you need to understand something about this text. Yes, Jesus is divine, and he's demonstrating his lordship, but he's also, as one commentator put it, he is also the truly human one. Israel's Lord, who is to be the world's Lord, anticipating in his rule over wind and wave, over bread and fish, the sovereignty that Israel believed the Messiah would have over the whole world. To the ancients and to a Hebrew mindset, the sea represents utter chaos, turmoil, disorder. It was a dark, ominous image that represented forces that were completely unpredictable and untamable and uncontrollable. In Hebrew poetry, the image of the sea represented destructive and cosmic forces that were forces beyond our control. Listen to how the Hebrew poet, in Psalm 46, the psalmist puts it. He gives this wonderful promise, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Then he goes on to describe the trouble. He says, therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. The psalmist describes the sea as waters foaming and surging and roaring. A picture, not a picture of an afternoon excursion out on your catamaran or your little sailboat, But it's a picture of chaos and turmoil and uncontrollable forces. Now again, let me try to apply this for a minute. You've got to take the doctrine and try to apply the doctrine by looking into your heart. See, to the surging sea, to the storms of life, how do we typically respond? If you look at the text, verse 50, Jesus tells his disciples not to be afraid. Which obviously means that the natural tendency of our heart, the normal, the default mode, is fear. We may respond differently to fear, but the dynamic of fear is there for all of us. And Dan Allender writes this about fear. He says, all of us fear what we cannot control. Fear is our response to uncertainty about our resources in the face of danger. When we are assaulted by a force that overwhelms us and compels us to face that we are helpless and out of control. Fear is provoked when the threat of danger, and this is important, physical or relational, not all danger is fear, is physical. Fear is provoked when the threat of danger, physical or relational, exposes, this is what fear does, it exposes our inability to preserve what we most deeply cherish. All fear involves the threat of danger. And it is into that chaos, the chaos of fear that Jesus ordains, sends us into, and walks right into himself. What is he trying to do? He is trying to show us, give us some self-discovery, expose in us what we most deeply cherish so that we can let go of that in order to let him in the boat and hold on to him and him alone. Because it is into that that Jesus says in verse 50, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And literally, Jesus is uttering four words. I am 
no fear. And the Greek actually begins with the words, the construction, ego emi. And it is the same construction that is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, something known as the Septuagint, to translate Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. Once again, the Moses story, the Exodus story, where God reveals his name to Moses. I am who I am. Jesus is taking upon himself, do you recognize what he is doing here? He is taking upon himself the divine name, the divine identity, and he says, I am no fear. In other words, the message is simple. You have no control, but it doesn't mean things are out of control. Control is a myth and illusion for us, but the wind and the waves are no problem for him. Because look at verse 51. This is amazing. I am no fear, and then he got into the boat with them. And the wind immediately ceases. And they were utterly astounded. They go from terror to utter astonishment. They go from terror to real terror. Terror at their circumstances to astonishment and terror. Who in the world is this? And may I make a proposition for you? I don't believe you've begun to really know Jesus until you begin to ask the question, who is this Jesus? If he is some, somebody that you simply go, well, I believe him, I accept him into my heart, that's about it, he loves me, and that's it. You haven't begun to meet the I am. The one who is truly uncontrollable and untamable and unpredictable. The one who is life itself. He gets into the boat and immediately the wind ceases. In Mark chapter 4, we saw it was through his word. He spoke, peace be still. Here it's his mere presence. The I am shows up and the wind ceases. Which tells us, do you know what we need more than anything else in the world? We need the presence of God. And what is the gospel? We talk about the heart of covenant theology being that God is our God and we are his people. And how is that fulfilled in the New Covenant? He comes as Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean? It means God with us. The presence of God. See, you cannot escape the storms, but you know what you have in the storms? You have Emmanuel. God with you. The God who is loved. You want to know what the number one chief thing we need to learn to do in our lives? And what is the hardest thing? Is to cultivate abiding with love cultivating love. Because how does God reveal it? The I am, 1 John 4 says, God is love. We need the presence of love in our lives. So let me ask you, are you letting Jesus into the boat? Do you seek his presence and his power? Or is knowing about him sufficient for you? Because you need his presence and his power. So how can we know this? And how can we be assured that his presence won't harm us, won't kill us? We have Christ our life in the storm, but we need more than that. We need Christ our life in salvation. And I think nobody makes this point better than Tim Keller. Tim Keller who says that if Jesus is only Lord, if he is only holy, if he is only power to us, that will utterly crush us. And he goes on to ask the question, 
Does Jesus Christ walk through every storm? And the answer is no. Absolutely not. There is one storm that Jesus doesn't walk through. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, we read, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. And Dr. Keller says, do you know what is being said here? When Jesus Christ was on the cross, he had to be almost surely thinking of that great psalm that Jonah cried out in the belly of the fish. And of course, why was Jonah in the belly of the fish? He was there because a storm of God's wrath for his disobedience had come to him, and he was thrown into the water, and when he was down there in the belly of the fish, he said these words, he uttered this particular psalm, he said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. Dr. Keller says when Jesus Christ was on the cross, he was certainly thinking about this. And when he said there was one greater than Jonah, he meant this. He meant there is one storm in which I do absolutely sink. There is one storm in which the waves do go over me. I won't walk over them. I won't walk through them. Because you see, I'm going into the only storm that can really ultimately kill you. The storm of justice. The storm of God's punishment for sin. I am going under those seas. I am going under those waves. I am going under those billows. I am going to be really cast out and it is because I sank in the only storm that can really sink you eternally that you are going to be able to walk through with me, with my presence, every other storm that ever strikes you. You see, Jesus went into the storm of truly being absent of God. He cried out from the cross. You want, you want to see Jesus going under the waves, the storm coming over him? He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we can never be without Emmanuel, God with us. And all we have to do is let him into the boat. Do you trust that? See, are you in a storm right now? The real work you have to do is to not try to control the storm. Don't try to empty the boat with your bucket. Let Jesus into the storm, into the boat with you. See, the storm you're going through right now, and it might be quite severe. It might be quite damaging, but it cannot kill you. Jesus went through that storm for you. And if you trust that, you can go through the storm with great character, with great virtue, which virtue never means denying your pain. Virtue never means being a rugged individualist where you stand up and you're stoic about your pain. Virtue means you desperately cry out for your need for Jesus and even have your friends notice it was the disciples together. Jesus came into the boat with them. Sometimes it's your whole family helping you to bring Jesus into the boat 
so that the presence of God, the presence of love, you cultivate that in your life to walk through the storms with him. Do you trust that? Is that what you're cultivating in your life? Are you practicing habits that will help you to cultivate love, that will shape you? Are you letting Jesus into the boat? And are we doing so together? As I close, and I'm going to pray, and Andrew's going to come up and lead us in a pastoral prayer. We have, I just want to share this with you because we have one member of our church who truly needs us as her family, as her family together to help her to bring Jesus into the boat with her. I got word last night that Laura Overcast's cancer has really taken a turn for the worst, and now it has spread into her brain. And so they're doing more tests. I was with the family yesterday. They're doing more tests to confirm what comes next. But they covet our prayers. They're trying to decide exactly what the next step is. She was, she's been in Halifax Hospital for the last couple of days. They're considering whether to send her home and put her under hospice care. But Laura is depending on us and her family is depending on us to do what? To help her bring Jesus into the boat. To walk through the storm with her. That's what a family does. That's what we do as we cultivate love together, as we reveal and manifest love together. Because even that storm, and that is a horrific storm, and we're called to hate that storm, but even that storm, though it may take her body, cannot kill her because Jesus went through the ultimate storm. The wind and the billows came over Jesus. So that even through that storm, the presence of Emmanuel is with her and with us forever. Do we trust that? Let's pray. Lord Andrew will lead us in a second praying for Laura. But we pray as, if, as we have come under your word that, Lord, we are, you know, it seems like we're going through the Red Sea, we're walking in the wilderness, and it is scary. I, but help us to... Do so having you in the boat, bringing you in, going and cultivating. I think we do a lot of things sometimes that are good things, but we avoid intimacy and intimate communion with you. And here in our church's life, we're faced with a time where we need intimate communion with you. And we're all faced at different times in our lives where we desperately need intimate communion with you. So, Lord, you have ordained that we would go through these storms. You've ordained them. You sent, as you did, you immediately sent the disciples off into the boat. We're out of control, but you're in control. Help us to remember that. Help us to nurture and cultivate the right disciplines, the right things. Shape our hearts. Shape our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.